This is Framed, a podcast where a group of friends get together once a week to talk about movies, what we liked about them, what we didn't like, and how they're made. I'm Elliot. I'm Robert. And I'm Brennan. This week, we're going to talk about the 1951 Hitchcock classic, Strangers on a Train. Uh, This was my pick for Thrillers Month. Um... I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. Uh, I tell people all the time that growing up, I basically watched Hitchcock and John Wayne films, and that was about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was really excited to revisit um, this movie. Uh, It definitely wasn't one of my favorites growing up. Uh, I think I only watched it once, um, but I was excited to return to it. I had to do some digging to find a review that came out at the time and not, you know, someone reviewing it in, you know, 2004 or something when right. we're all worshiping Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, so I found uh, one review for today, uh, which was written July 4th, 1951 uh, by Bosley Crother. And if there was a better 1950s name than that, I have not heard it. <laughs> Crother says uh, his last picture, Rope, will be remembered as a stunt which did not succeed, involving a psychopathic murderer who induced another young man to kill for thrills. Now, in his latest effort called Strangers on a Train, which serves to reopen the uh, Strand Theater last night under its new name, The Warner, Mr. Hitchcock again is tossing a crazy murder story in the air and trying to con us into thinking it will stand up without support. <laughs> um, he goes on to uh, basically reiterate those thoughts again and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was uh, one man who wrote for the... New York Times opinion uh, in the 50s. I'm excited to hear your guys's opinion. <laughs> so, Brennan, do you want to share your thoughts on this film first? Yeah, I'll go first. So, overall, I thought it, I really enjoyed it. There are a few nitpicky things about it, but it kind of goes with the time period. I The one thing about this time period um, when it comes to movies that I do not like is it they tend to be a little over the top with their acting in my opinion um but other than that i thought it was a well i mean it was a book before it was a movie i was doing some research on it um yeah and so i would really be interested on reading this book now after watching the film uh, there's a couple well i was doing research there's a couple fun facts that i'll throw in later um cool but i mean i enjoyed it it was really good it kept me i mean i watch a lot of thrillers so i kind of can pick out what is potentially going to happen i had two or three different things that i thought was going to happen towards the end because going into this i came into this completely eh, somewhat blind like i knew about it i have watched a few hitchcock films here and there and i've heard a list of a lot of um his films mainly from you robert growing up with sure. being friends we've i just have heard a lot of hitchcock film names and this was one of yeah. them um but i never got around to watch it until this past week 
but I thought it was as enjoyable. All right, Elliot, your thoughts. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, uh, this was my, my second time watching this. Um, but the first time was, was so long ago that I had forgotten all but a few scenes out of it. Um, like sure. Robert, um, I, I also grew up watching Alfred Hitchcock films. Um, and I kind of went on a Hitchcock bender as a teenager and just tried to watch like every, every Hitchcock film that I could, could get my hands on. And strangers on a train was, was in that, uh, that marathon that I did. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a while ago since I, since I watched it, but, um, in a way it was nice because I, I remembered so little of it that it was, it was kind of like watching it for the first time again. And, um, yeah, yeah I, I definitely really, really enjoyed it. This is like sort of towards the beginning of what I consider to be Hitchcock's golden era where he was just like cranking out hit after hit. Um, absolutely. In my opinion, that starts with rope, um, which the, the review <laughs> alluded to. Um, yep. I could take or leave anything before that, but yeah, like from, from like rope to the birds, I think he just, every single thing he did was a masterpiece, including this. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. 39 steps is clearly his <laughs> cinemal work. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, just, I, I love this movie and, um, I'm, I'm really hoping we, we can uh, talk about some of the imagery that Hitchcock uses in this. Cause I, I think this film is really rich in, uh, like not just the way shots are composed, but just like what's in the shots is, uh, is Absolutely. really interesting. So I found myself, uh, really just, just being a kid in a candy store, um, watching just the the shot selection that Hitchcock is so strong with throughout, and you see a lot of uh, those strong uh, Hitchcockian themes throughout mm. this. Whether it's the uh, silhouettes as they're going through the tunnel of love, yeah, um, he loves. Uh, showing violence but not showing it fully yeah uh which we see in the reflection of the uh broken glasses like there's just there's so many like just quintessential hitchcock moments in this um so yeah let's get into it um so as usual i'll just kind of lead us through the uh plot and as we hit moments that stood out to you guys, let's kind of unpack them, dive on in, and uh, discuss this thing. Sounds good. So uh, this film starts out, uh, as you would expect, on a train. Mm -hmm. um, and we are introduced to two characters, the two uh, leads of this film. Two sets of shoes. Guy and uh, Bruno. Yes, we have the classic hitchcock tracking the feet shot which i love because it's not a throwaway shot and i feel like maybe well still to this day though most of the time when students are doing these shots they're you know saying oh i'm doing a, a tarantino shot because he also does a lot of feet shots mm -hmm. um but like you'll see people you know trying to homage this and they're just shooting feet to shoot feet. But mm -hmm. like the shoes tell us something about the characters right out of the gate. And right. I love that. They, mm -hmm. they set up like, oh, OK, who are these people? Um, and if you read Hitchcock biographies, like you learn that he has all these strong opinions of 
like what will give you deep insight into character like even in <laughs> this he thought that the uh the meals the dinners that they ordered and ate on the train like gave you all this insight to the characters which who am i to disagree the man was a genius <laughs> but um, i don't even so remember meet, what they ordered for, for yeah couldn't meals, tell but... you and i literally watched it you know three hours ago or whatever but there you go um so uh we meet guy uh, who is a young tennis player with dreams of being in politics. Um, and Bruno, a uh, slightly older uh, stay-at-home son mm-hmm. uh, who is kind of bored with life. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, um, Bruno recognizes Guy. Uh, from the papers and strikes up a conversation with him. Guy is a little uneased by this uh, and uh, is trying to get out of it, but because the dining car is full, he's forced to hang out and have a conversation with Bruno. In this conversation, uh, Bruno suggests that since uh Guy has a wife who he is trying to divorce, uh, and Bruno has a father who is bearing down on him, that their lives would be much easier if these two people weren't in them anymore. And that murder is actually really easy to get away with. The problem is that there's always a motive that ties you. But if you did someone else's murder, you wouldn't have a motive, so they would never catch you. So he suggests that he, Bruno, kills Guy's wife, and Guy can kill Bruno's dad. Guy is, of course, not for this, is very uh, uncomfortable with this conversation, kind of just takes it as a joke, and moves on. Uh, We then proceed to the uh, We meet his uh, current wife. Yeah, where we meet Guy's current wife. We find out that uh, she's been cheating on him uh, and is pregnant with a child that is not his. But because he is being more successful in his tennis career, getting more attention and more money, uh, that she no longer wants to divorce him. Right. And wants to keep him around. Uh, This frustrates Guy because Guy has been estranged from her for a while now, has met a new girl and started a relationship and would like to marry her, but can't because he's still legally married to Miriam. Yeah, I just want to pause here for a second. This uh, this particular scene in the uh, where was she working? Was it like a shoe shop or like a? I think some, it was a bookstore. Bookstore. Yeah, some some kind of storefront. When they go off into the yeah. little side room with the with the glass walls, the fact that he doesn't cut through this whole conversation mm. and they're in that little enclosed space, like I I felt that was really effective for building up the the you know the tension and the claustrophobia of, of that. You know, you feel like you're in in that little box with them as as things are escalating. I completely agree. I think that 
one thing that really stood out to me was the editing of this film Mm -hmm. because Hitchcock is so confident in the actors and the story that he very rarely cuts to try to build something. Mm -hmm. He lets the story sit and his cuts are like, by today's standards kind of choppy honestly yeah actually Uh, i was gonna bring that up later on there's a particular scene that i was going to complain about towards the end but i'll 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 come back to that later um they're they're rather choppy cuts um but it's my opinion and i could be wrong that the reason they're choppy is because he is far more concerned with the performance than Mm. with making a smooth cut. Mm. Um, And he's, you know, not necessarily trying to make you forget you're watching a movie. He, you know, is a firm believer in the cinematic experience and wants to remind you that you're having it. It's almost Brechtian. If you're familiar with theater where uh, Brechtian shows, like you don't hide the lights. You, you know, try to, uh, bring attention to the fact that it is a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, I feel like Hitchcock here is not afraid to remind you that this is a movie, uh, that you're in for this experience that you can only have in the theaters. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I, you know, when I'm editing stuff, I get super pedantic about like trying to hide cuts and, and, you know, make sure that there's continuity, like, oh, well, was his hand here or, or, you know, were they facing the right direction? But yeah, like, I think when you've got strong performances, I think that stuff is, is less important. Um, I, I can think of Absolutely. a lot of other directors that, that sort of prefer performances over continuity. Um, so I, I don't think Hitchcock is, is alone in that. Yeah. Walter Murch, who is arguably the best known, uh, film editor mm. uh he cut you know on the godfather and all sorts of uh just insanely well-known things apocalypse now like yeah. the list just goes on and on uh he has a book that if you're at all into filmmaking or editing uh you absolutely need to read it's called in the blink of an eye mm. and it's a lecture he gave put in book form so like you could read it in an hour and it's you know a very easy read yeah uh, but he talks about i think it's his nine rules it might only be eight rules uh that he has whenever he's making a decision to cut mm. um and he breaks it down in importance and he puts performance above continuity above eye trace above anything else mm. uh and I that's like so easy to look at and be all like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, performance is most important. But when you're actually cutting, it's so hard to like have faith in the work and be all like, nope, <laughs> the performance is strong enough. It's fine. We're going with it. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of refreshing to and I, I definitely wouldn't want to see the style in everything. But it it's kind of cool seeing just like a confident filmmaker, which, you know, by all accounts, Hitchcock did not suffer from a lack of uh, self-belief. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely cool to watch a confident filmmaker doing what they want to do. Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, after he 
has this encounter with his uh, current wife. He angrily leaves. He's been defeated. His plans to marry his new girlfriend, the senator's daughter, uh, have completely been dashed. He doesn't know what to do. He calls his girlfriend in a rage, uh, and he says he's so angry he could strangle her. Dun, dun, dun. Which is great little foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. Um, We then... uh, Is the next thing that happens... Well, we, we call have, from Bruno. We have a, a scene in, in Bruno's house with his his parents. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, we we spend time in uh, Bruno's house. Yeah. Uh, his we learn that his mom is a painter and pretty much just a big fan of Bruno, <laughs> uh, and that Bruno's father is not a fan of bruno very much not uh i uh I, I i got like super uncomfortable with this scene like by you know certainly by the standards of 1950s films like it wasn't like super creepy but like i i still kind of got like norman yeah bates let's vibes. talk about that like, like... I, you definitely <laughs> get like you know shades of, of norman bates um in this for scene. sure uh like hitchcock loved his uh his mama's boy uh, villains, and I think you, yes. you see that here. Uh, what What were your guys's opinion of Bruno as a character? Uh, and I I also, uh, Elliot, you said uh, by today's standards or something along those lines a second mm-hmm. ago. Um, do you think? Well, let's just talk about Bruno as a character first, and then sure. I'll ask my follow up question. Well, he's definitely crazy. Um, and that that stood out to me a lot more on the second time through than uh, than on he's, the first time for some reason. He's crazy, but at the same time, he's cynical. Like he's he doesn't just sporadically do his crazy thoughts. He's calculating. Yeah, I mean, it's all he's got it all thought out. How I mean, other than the like to an extent, even to where. If this go doesn't go this way, oh well, then I'm going to do this. So it should put me back on track. Mm-hmm. I mean, even all the way to the end, he. I'm not gonna. We'll get kind of get to the end too, but um, down to the end where he's going to take the lighter to, like, well, if, um, he's not going to do my thing. I'm just going to do everything in my power to incriminate yeah exactly um so i mean it's like i said where he is super crazy like to i don't know kind of evil genius-esque i would say Mm -hmm. for for me this this film reinforced never give out personal information to strangers (laughs) (laughs) definitely um especially like Again, you know, a film that came out in 1951, you'd think, oh, it would be super hard to track down like where a person, what their hometown was or like what their you know wife's name was. But like everything he did, I'm skipping ahead a bit, but everything he did to, to yeah. find Miriam was was like perfectly plausible um, yep. without cell phones, without the Internet, you know. It's crazy how. um modern 
Bruno feels to me mm. because I, I actually do agree with Brennan uh, about classic films having a very uh, theatrical style right. in their performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bruno felt real. Like Bruno yeah. felt like you could put him in yeah. pretty much any film yeah. And I, I would believe that, you know, he he's this real character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bruno is quite possibly the strongest part of this film. Uh, yeah. And I I feel very uncomfortable with him. Yeah, because he's bored. He's just a character that's bored. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it's easy to hate someone that you you know understand why they're doing things mm-hmm. um or even the the new style of sympathizing with all of our villains like and understanding where they're coming from but like bruno is just a, a sociopath like yeah. he he just wants to try everything and doesn't <laughs> care much about what that means to other people right um so I, I think that Bruno's character works really well. Um, yeah, I had actually forgotten about that scene at the beginning where he said, don't you just want to try everything? And so like when mm-hmm. you when you th- remember that, it's it's almost as if like, you know, committing murder to him doesn't it's not really so much done out of malice so much as just like a curiosity. I, like how oh, can we get yep. away with this? You know? Yep. In a way, I agree. But there's some aspect I disagree. I mean, if you think about that scene where they introduce his parents, yeah, yes, he's definitely a mama's boy. But I could, I could feel the tension of just how his dad was talking, which is probably why he's thought about killing his dad. Because mm. I, I mean, I just felt that he, the two of them just didn't get along. Like the dad's talking down on him, and so I think that might have been the stem of. Mm. the start of um his craziness i'll just say yeah and it's just bloomed as he got older from this man i hate my dad blah blah blah, to something i mean obviously we don't know what clicked in his brain or if he was always this way because this was pre this film like backstory type thing things um but yeah i i think there was a like reasoning originally originally a reason behind all this yeah Um, and then since he had all this in his head because they even mention uh, a magazine article or newspaper article um that talked about um if i remember right was it about the affair yeah, in the first scene, or, that's that's how he found out about Guy's personal history. Yeah, and then it just kind of bloomed from there. Like, oh, hey, I've got someone here that would probably be... I think in his head, he's like, oh, I think this guy would be easy to track since he's this big-time tennis, tennis star. Mm. Um, yeah, he'd be easy to, to sink my teeth into. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't considered it that way that he like picked guy 
for his uh, yeah. his plan. That that's interesting. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Brennan. That there's there's definitely like an undercurrent of of anger and resentment to his character. Um, that's that's definitely there. I think it's it's kind of like this mix of he's bored, but he also has this like back burner project if he wants to kill his dad, and so he yeah he just kind of puts it together when he's on the train with guy. But I definitely think Bruno is he's the most I think he has the most backstory, most in-depth character for this film. Like Robert said, he definitely is he drives the film. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Hitchcock really likes playing with an everyman character and guy is the everyman here yeah. where yeah. he's less concerned about making him feel really flushed out as he is about making him feel like it could be you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you see this in, you know, I mean, his name is literally guy. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, he's he, Hitchcock loves doing this with putting, you know, wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time yep, is yep. just his, his classic trope, if you will. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's very true in Guy's case. Um, but yeah, do you think... So my follow-up question is, do you think the stakes of this film are high enough to work for modern audiences? Or do you think if you were to make Strangers on a Train, uh, you would have to... For the first time, not like remaking it. Uh, but today, do you think you'd have to add more restraints, more pressure, more elements? Um, so that's a good question. One thing that did stick out to me um, is, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump all over the place a little bit to, to support this it. point, but um, sort of towards the end of, I would say act two where guy reveals to Anne um, that what, what's actually been going on that he's, there's this crazy guy that's been chasing him and he basically tells her the whole story. Um, yeah. And she just believes him, which um, as a person like watching this, where you're, you're sort of in, in, you know, you're putting yourself in, in guy's position. It, it does have the effect of unwinding the tension a little bit, which, you know, is yes. a relief, but also, it does kind of give guy more wiggle room to, to, to plan his next move and, you know, decide how he's going to get out of this. I think a modern movie would not have given him that, uh, pass, I guess, where I completely agree in a, in a modern film. Yeah, go ahead. I think as we move on this month, uh, we're going to be watching a lot more modern thrillers. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, some of this is recency bias, but I just watched A Quiet Place Part 2. And I think that that is a masterclass in turning up the tension at every turn. Yeah. And whenever you as the audience thinks, oh my goodness, this is the worst thing that could happen to the characters, the filmmakers twist the knife a little bit more. Mm. Um, And I don't think that Hitchcock is doing that here. I think that Hitchcock... You know, the the only murder, well, almost the only murder, we'll come back to that, uh, <laughs> happens uh, very early in this film. Yeah. Um, arguably in Act 1. <laughs> yeah. Arguably that's what sends us into Act 2. 
And then really, like, there's one scene where Guy has a gun pointed at him, but you don't really think that it's going to go off. Mm-mm. Uh, really, the only stakes from Act 2 on is whether or not Guy is going to be blamed for this murder. Yeah, I think the other thing that is would be different about it if it was made today is I think that... Uh, like I think in general, I'm gonna try to be as as broad as possible. But I think if you compare like America's general moral compass circa 1951 to today, I think there'd be a lot more disagreement about like what your main character should do at any given point. Um, mm. You know, I think that it's plausible in a in a 2021 thriller film that guy might have shot Bruno in his bedroom to to protect himself. Uh, you know, I, I think that yep. wouldn't have been outside the realm of possibility. But in the 50s, you know, there was more of a sense of, you know, decency and, and you know, sort of uh, chivalry, I, I, I guess, to society. Like the scene where Bruno just stops what he's doing after, you know, he's he's fleeing the scene of the crime. He he stops to help a blind guy across the street just because just it's like it's it, it was just a very different world to to what we have today. Um, and also just the, the, you know, complete faith in, in the, uh, that the police are going to figure it out at the end of the movie. Like, I thought that that was kind of like a, uh, absolutely a, a relic of a time gone by that, you know, the, the, in the last, you know, real, the, the, the last clue is revealed and the police are like, well, that ties everything up. It's like, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think about the you know, if this were made today. I think I basically agree with you. Um, I, I don't think you could do this really anywhere near how it was done, uh, and have it be successful to an audience of today. Mm -hmm. I think that even though there are undeniably suspenseful, moments in this film um there's also a lot of quiet relaxed moments Mm -hmm. and i think most non uh cinema lovers are going to get bored with this film yeah which you know you hear all the time and like a story that i love to hate to tell uh, is I showed Rear Window, which is probably my favorite Hitchcock film, yep, same uh, here. to my wife, who had never seen it. Uh, and I was like, oh, you're going to love this film. It's going to be great. Uh, and she was bored out of her mind because nothing happens in that film until the last 10 minutes. It's all um, in your head. Which is it's... true. But it's yeah. like, it's all in your head and it's building to this and it's a master class in, you know, making you question the the narrator, the the lead of like, are, are they seeing what they're really seeing and yep. are they making the right decisions and should we as the audience be nervous or should we not be and are they going to get themselves in trouble accusing people for yeah. doing things that haven't actually happened? Yep, yep. Um, 
but it is a slow burn, but it's a slow burn that has this dynamite at the end of it. Yeah, but it's a slow burn. Yeah, I'll I'll circle back with you, Robert. I, I have yet to show my fiance Rear Window, but it is it is on the list, and I've I've let her know that it's yeah. one of my favorite films. So I, I'll let you know how that goes if I get a similar <laughs> sort of experience. I'll, I'll be interested to hear because I really do think there's something to be said, and even even like Raiders, which is like a popcorn action flick like mm-hmm. it's very fast paced in my opinion um i i know that students um at the college that i work at uh when they're given that script to read and then watch the movie a lot of them say that you know compared to modern movies they just found this boring wow um which yeah you know, I, I don't want to be old man yelling at cloud here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say something I, similar. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you're fine. But like, I don't want to just be saying that they're wrong. Um, because like the reality is I have a bit of a older palette in film because growing up, I really didn't watch modern stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I watched John Ford movies. I watched Hitchcock films. Mm-hmm. I watched, you know, uh, these, you know, big fifties and sixties movies that are, you know, paced differently than today. Yeah. It's not to say that they're paced better or worse, but they're definitely paced differently. Definitely. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of people watching what they enjoy, you Mm -hmm. know? So, uh, if, if Hitchcock isn't your thing, you know, I understand, but I also think it's such a waste if you, you know, can't sit there and enjoy some of these quieter, for lack of a better term, films. Yeah, I, I think... Also wanna... Go ahead, Brennan. No, I was just going to say, I also want to add the one other difference in um, modern movies compared to, say, this movie is... In modern times, people, whenever they're watching these thriller movies, um, they are wanting. There's, there just wasn't a lot of like twists and turns. Like, oh, did, like, right from the beginning, we pretty much knew how it was going to end. I feel like, compared to um, nowadays, you can go half the movie with kind of a rather a whodunit. Or even, yeah. um, I don't know, just kind of that sort of thing, like a whodunit type situation. Or yeah. or whether sorry, or not the lead is going to make it out alive. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. I hadn't considered the fact that, like, he tells you who the murderer is in the first act. And, you know, this is very sparse in terms of twists and turns. Like, it's a pretty straightforward story, but I think that that just goes back to to just shed more light on what a, you know, I I think Hitchcock's earned his title as the master of suspense, because even given the fact that you're you're never jerked around and like thrown curveballs in the story, it's still an incredibly tense film to watch. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to kind of condense the plot because obviously there's, you know, parts that are more interesting to talk about than others. So uh, basically Bruno decides that uh, the best way to get Guy on board with his plan is to just kill 
guy's wife and then guilt him into holding up his part so which it, uh, which kind of amused me since he started from the premise of we this is a perfect way to pull off a murder because it seems like you know guy's alibi kind of falls apart later and it seems like that's the sort of thing bruno would want to check with him before going and doing this is like hey make sure you're at this place and time yes absolutely <laughs> but anyway um so bruno looks up where uh guy's estranged wife is he goes there he follows her to an amusement park carnival type place mm-hmm. uh, and he starts following her around uh, and ultimately ends up strangling her um kind this is a... definitely what's that print I was just going to say, it was kind of in a flirting way. Like he, I mean, I definitely feel like she felt this way, um, but he was doing things in such a flirty manner that. It kind this of disarmed her. That thought, yeah. But this is one, of, this is one issue I had with this film was, I mean, none of them, her or the two guys thought twice of this random stranger following them around. I mean, yeah, like I said, he was being kind of flirtatious with her, but man, those other two guys definitely being in this time frame in most films, um, guys get jealous. I mean, that's not just um, back in that time or mm-hmm. this all the way to modern times. Like those guys are going to get jealous of this guy following the three of them and hit basically hitting on this girl. Granted, he wasn't truly hitting on her, but he was falling around and finding the perfect opportunity to kill her. Right. But this was definitely one big, one of the bigger main issues I had with this film was the, you don't think that them, you know, saying, come on, let's move on to the, you know, Ferris wheel, come on, or the merry-go-round, rather, come on, let's let's get out of here and go to the boats, and, like, that wasn't them trying to, like, get away from this guy? I, I mean, I really don't, because, I mean, they're at a amusement park. You're going to be doing that at an amusement park, going from here to there. You're not going to really be standing in one i mean maybe towards the beginning or if you're eating yeah you're going to be standing in one spot for a little bit but if you're at an amusement park you're going to be hopping rides anyway um but the guys didn't even tend to notice i mean it didn't seem like they noticed him like she did yeah maybe they just didn't regard him as a threat that you know because he only I don't know if that he even actually talk, speaks to her until right at the end where he says, are you, is your name Miriam? I think that, you know, maybe they just didn't think, oh, this guy just happens to be standing around and smiling, but he's not like actually hitting on her. I think for me, I, I think there is that like tension built up between them in the, uh, in the shots like i do think particularly at the like strength testing machine mm-hmm. like they notice uh that she's noticing him and they're like quick to drag her away somewhere else so i oh. i do think that's there so I could i think... can i offer a uh, a counter theory here yeah please 
I um I was just thinking like you know maybe this was a deliberate choice by Hitchcock in order to make you feel that Miriam was more vulnerable and put you in her position. The fact that Bruno is here and he's so clearly clearly to us as the audience a threat um and the guys are just like not even paying any attention to him. Like do you guys think that might have been a deliberate choice to to make it even harder to watch because he's just there and nobody's stopping him yeah absolutely i think i think the fact that and you guys might disagree with this but uh i've already alluded to this shot uh inside the the tunnel of love where you see the silhouettes of the two boats coming close to each other and then miriam screams (laughs) and like logically there is no way that he's going to try to jump from his boat to her boat with two other guys <laughs> in there to kill her. Like, logically, you know, this yeah. can't be the moment. It's it's just Hitchcock toying with you. It it works. Exactly. It does exactly. toy with you. It gets you like, ah, for her. Yep. Um, I, I think that Hitchcock very, like, this is Hitchcock being Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this entire you know, sequence. He's toying with you the whole time without dialogue, mm-hmm. without, you know, weapons, without, you know, dry, without violence, mm-hmm. like just through looks and proximity and camera movement and blocking. And the music. You, I want to mention and the, the music. The, the, the fact. OK, so um, he only uses diegetic music in the scene. So all we hear is just the carnival music in the background. Mm. And I think that's one of the most important aspects to the scene to why it feels so uncomfortable and you feel like you're there because he spends like a good, you know, I would say 10 minutes at the carnival before the murder actually happens. So it kind of grounds you in in the scene. The fact that there's no there's no orchestra, there's no um, nothing to remind you that this is a movie and the actual when the murder actually takes place, like uh, for me, like I just felt so incredibly uncomfortable because I think in most other films, this would be like where the music would come in and there'd be like, you know, oh, the, you know, cut to the next scene or we, we move away. So, but he, he forces us to focus on it without any kind of relief. And we, we watch yeah. the entire thing happen and it is just so incredibly tense and uncomfortable. What were your thoughts of the actual death montage? The, uh, the shot through the glasses, the shot through the glasses, the glasses and lighter falling to the ground, mm. her body falling to the ground. I thought it was effective. Um, you know, I like it, it sounds bad to say, but like, you know, this is where he he gives you relief from the tension. Like when she when she does die, like it, that's when it unwinds. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I thought it was all all done really, uh, really effectively. Did Did you happen to do any research on how they did the 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 shot on the on the glasses i didn't um like there's a lot of camera trickery in this film uh some more noticeable than others yeah uh like clearly they shot at a lower frame rate and mm-hmm. then sped up a lot of like the carousel oh yeah um, right stuff uh i thought that looked my... decent even though that it was obvious yeah. what they were doing um 
uh, or merry-go-round. I keep calling it a carousel. Um, hey, aren't they? I think that's. Aren't they the same thing? No, it's a it's a carousel. Yeah, merry-go-round no, is I'm, this sort of. Th- yeah, I'm thinking of Ferris wheels every time I say carousel. Um, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's a round thing that people ride and <laughs> pretend is a great thing. Um, but no, I didn't do any research on that. My guess is that they probably projected it and like uh like they probably built a giant frame for the for the glasses like it probably wasn't at scale yes that would be my assumption that it you know we're playing with scale there and then it's a projection Mm -hmm. but uh, I I don't know how they did it. No. Yeah, I I I I didn't either. Um, unfortunately, I didn't look into it, but um, it looked cool. <laughs> it did indeed. It had that uh, very very Hitchcockian mm-hmm. uh, feel to it. Um, one of my favorite Hitchcockian uh, death scenes is actually from. Uh, the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, see, I, um, I've I've never tried Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, yeah, it's uh, because a lot of it isn't written or directed by him. Yeah, right. Uh, but the first episode is. Um, oh, okay. And it's such a classic, like, uh, setup a Hitchcock story. Mm-hmm. Um where uh the uh the hero of the story goes off to work um i think it's called revenge uh but uh the hero leaves their trailer uh for work uh and the wife is left uh in the trailer a man comes by rapes her the hero comes back finds out that she has been attacked and she is just in shock and unstable and he's driving her to uh, a hospital and she spots the man who did it and the husband parks the car and he follows him into his apartment and you see the silhouette of the man go into his apartment and the husband follow in and he uses a tire iron to kill the man and he comes back out And he gets in the car and he drives away. And the woman who's still in shock then sees another man and says, that's him. And then it rolls to credits. Um, And like, that's just such like this Hitchcockian, like, oh, no, what have I done uh, (laughs) moment? But in the Uh, same way, like there's this big, intense violence mm -hmm. that you don't actually see clearly. Yeah. Um, Psycho is another, you know, classic example of it's like 130 different cuts uh, in the shower scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you don't actually see anything, but no, you but it, feel it, the it, violence. It makes you squirm all the same. I think it goes back yep. to the, the theater of the mind stuff when you're when you're working mm-hmm. with film is that what you don't see is almost always more powerful than what you do see. For sure. So I think this whole, you know, like embracing of violent acts, but not putting them front and center, which 
his alts we do today. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's all about making it gory or making it, you know, closer is such like a, a classic Hitchcock feel that I just, I love it. Mm-hmm. I, the, the, the death scene in this worked really well for me. Yeah. It's like the fact that he shoots it through the glasses. It's like, it does. It's like you, you see like details of the murder, but you don't, it's not full on in front of you. So it's yep. like, you still are left to imagine parts of it. So it's like he kind of goes halfway. We don't completely go away from it, but we don't. It's not full yeah. on in your face either. Yeah, the the violence is there, but it's always slightly obscured. Mm-hmm. So uh, moving on from there, Bruno flees the scene. Uh, one of the ride operators like notices him, but at this point he doesn't know that a murder has happened, so he doesn't you know stop him or anything. Um, and then we proceed. Oh, Bruno, th- this is my biggest complaint in the movie, uh, because I hate check off guns that aren't paid off. <laughs> uh, and Bruno takes the glasses from the scene and he gives uh, Miriam's glasses to Guy. Oh, yeah. And we don't ever see what Guy and does just, with them. It feels like. Guy should have accidentally left these in his apartment or something. And when the police are there later on in the film, he needs to, you know, hide them or whatever. And you would need that suspense of like, oh, no, he's going to be, you know, Mm. accused now. But we just don't pay that off. And that feels like a missed opportunity to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I actually totally forgot about the glasses. But yeah, I think he he gets them from Bruno and then they just kind of drop out of the out of the film yeah i think the purpose of like narratively of him taking the glasses is we pay off that uh bruno is kind of haunted by miriam's ghost through the form of you know being reminded by her when he sees other women wearing glasses right like uh, Um, barbara exactly yeah Uh, which fun fact is played by hitchcock's daughter Mm -hmm. yeah Um, I, i did notice that but I think you only like, I I don't think he needed to take them for that to still work. Like, I think we could have just like had the death happen in the glasses and stay on them as he's, you know, running away. And Mm -hmm. I think it would have paid off just as well. So the fact that he takes the glasses with him, you know, evidence, and then it's never, you know, addressed later is a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think that's fair. But uh, go on, Brennan. I was just going to say to add about since while we're on the subject of the glasses, when I was doing some, this is one of my fun facts. I've kind of I only I read this in one or two different articles. Um, the glasses were actually added for the film. Apparently, the glasses yeah. part were not in the book. That's 100% true. And on top of that, Hitchcock being the, you know, just very intense director he is, he was so set on these being really thick Coke bottle glasses uh, that they didn't use fake prescription. They used real thick glasses and the actress had perfect vision. Mm. So she was rendered completely blind by these (laughs) and had to be led everywhere. Oh, wow. That that's interesting. So the rest of the film proceeds with 
uh, Bruno trying to guilt Guy into doing his murder. Right. And Guy spiraling out of control as he feels like the police are closing in on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so some some of the bigger set pieces moving forward uh, is probably the uh, the dinner party mm, that yeah. Guy's girlfriend's father, the senator, uh, is throwing some sort of fundraiser, probably. Um, and through a different connection, Bruno gets an invitation and shows up here. Uh, and of course, at this point, things are very intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police are following Guy, and he's aware of this. Uh, so he definitely doesn't want Bruno just popping in. So this whole sequence of the uh, dinner party, what were our thoughts of it? I, uh, well, so I think that the the most memorable part of this has got to be the uh, the scene where, where Bruno, you know, starts strangling the uh, the random party guest as he sort of the goes judge's into, wife, the judge's wife. Yeah, as he goes into like this weird trance state when he happens to see Barbara standing nearby and, and is reminded of Miriam from the, from the carnival. It was like, you know, you, you sort of saw it coming that something like something bad was going to happen. Um, mm. as another good example of, of Hitchcock, just putting you in an uncomfortable position watching this and he doesn't let up. Like it just, it, yeah. it just gets more and more. You're just squirming by the end of this scene. Um, yeah, I, I think that that uh, that de- that part definitely stood out to me the most. I also thought that Anne um, figuring out what was going on was was reasonably plausible, if if a bit thin. Mm. Um, I thought yes. her her putting the pieces together, like it's after you know it was it was done and she figured it out. It's like I basically bought it, but it did seem like a a stretch that she would put it well i don't know now that i'm thinking because if he had if guy like had this weirdo following him around and she saw him she saw them talking when they were out walking around outside and then suddenly he shows up at this dinner party and he starts strangling the guest it's like you know you might i, I don't know yeah. like, it, it's it's sort of like she's jumping to conclusions a little bit but she just happens to jump to the right one i guess yes i i i kind of agree that it walks that line of plausible but convenient Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess it it also kind of feeds into what i was saying earlier about you know like her figuring it out and then siding with guy does alleviate the tension a little bit but i don't know if it was strictly necessary for the rest of the story to work like pretty much all she does to help guy is is she sort of assists with the distraction at the tennis match later but you know, he also goes to Bruno, though. Yeah, she tries to, to sets in motion the end event. Right. That that's true. Yeah. So she sort of. Yeah, she 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 hurts things before she she helps things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Brennan, what did you think about the the dinner party? So at the beginning of the dinner party, I was. Kind of. I was kind of lost at that, like trying to figure out where that specific scene was going. Mm-hmm. But then as it progressed, I like the, 
the use of the glasses again to portray going back to the murder. I enjoyed that. I thought it was well done. Um, like you said, Elliot, I really, I feel like they should have put more reasons of why she believed that, why, like she figured out that he was the murderer, just a guy following. And then all of a sudden the, like the strangling part, I feel like, I feel like there should have been something more in there to give her the idea of, Oh, Hey, this guy's the murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, I also thought the fainting part was, can we talk about that faint him fainting? I don't think I liked that either. It, yeah, that was a bit theatrical. I, I did. I, I didn't get it myself. I think the idea. Might, was, go ahead, Robert. I might be being too gracious here, but I took that as Bruno getting out of the situation. Mm. And okay, and I can see fate. that. I I can see that. Okay, like I I think it's supposed to be theatrical. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would have maybe like shown him like opening one eye at the end of that scene or, or like winking the guy <laughs> or something. But, you know, I, so, I don't know. Uh, in that same vein, it's funny you say that. Um, my favorite part of this uh, sequence is the fact that we don't spoon feed the audience about the glasses. Mm. Like, it would be so easy to, you know, have a slightly opaque uh, version of Miriam, like, appear over top of Barbara, or to do a a flashback, or to do this, like, super, like, zoom in on just the glasses or whatever, Mm -hmm. but we just show her, and Mm -hmm. we push in a little, and we trust the audience to make the connection. Well, yeah, he and also I, put some yeah. carnival music in there too. But yes, yes he, he, there he, there is there there is the the music tone. But like it again, I feel like it's confident. It's yeah. trusting your audience to be it there is. with you. I um, think yeah, Hitchcock and, understands that he's already done the legwork to to earn that because mm-hmm. we we focus so hard on Miriam's glasses at the carnival that like you know simply putting together glasses and carnival music later on in the film without any explanation we immediately know what bruno is thinking about for sure so from the uh the the dinner party uh guy makes the decision that he's going to call bruno Mm -hmm. and say you've convinced me i just want this over with i want you out of my life i will kill your father Um, So he tells Bruno to get out of there and stay out of there the whole night. um, Make sure he's somewhere that he'll have an alibi. And then he sneaks out the back to lose the cop and heads to um, to Bruno's house. Mm -hmm. That's probably the next big sequence. Thoughts on it? Um, The guard dog annoyed me a little bit. Really? Well, I like it's you like you were saying about the uh the Chekhov's gun that doesn't go off it's like mm. the the dog is sort of placed there to make us think that he's going to start barking or he's going to 
go after guy and he just slips by him effortlessly and then it it uh it just goes on and the dog is never important again so um mm. it definitely didn't ruin the sequence for me or anything i was just I, I it does raise the tension a little bit but it doesn't it's i i didn't find it to be as as effective as what what you know some of the tricks that hitchcock was using in the in the carnival scene okay what about I, you brennan i agree with that with the dog i feel like there should have been more maybe like a small bite or uh not actually biting him but like snapping at him or something to raise the tension a little bit more i felt like the dog was very like i mean guy did the right thing put his hand up there the dog sniff yada 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 mm-hmm. but i feel like if it was a true a guard dog like they are portraying it to be know that they are portraying it to be a guard dog mm, good point like it's, it's just, for me, the, as just someone, the house dog yeah as someone who owns a quote aggressive breed <laughs> in a german shepherd uh like my german shepherd looks fierce i suppose and might even bark at you if he doesn't know you and you're approaching you know in the dead of night or whatever but I highly doubt unless if he perceived you as like an immediate threat to me or my wife, he would do anything but, you know, smell you and lick you if you actually got close to him. Um, right. So, which, which, which I agree with. But this is also a f- film in the 50s where they tend to do this a lot with these specific breeds, I feel like. Yeah, I wonder if, if this. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Finish your thought, Brennan. Oh, just. Uh, in this kind of time frame, I mean, even in a lot of today's movies, they have these aggressive dog breeds as guard dogs. And I, I mean, it could be just me assuming it because that's what a lot of films do. Sure. But I mean, I could also see where maybe it was just a dog that was a house dog, but I feel like for it being a thriller, I think if they would have added something just to up it a little bit there, even have guy somehow, I don't know. I'm not for sure. Exactly. It's just, it kind of threw me a little bit. I was expecting a little bit more at that point. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think with some, some tiny adjustments to like the, cutting and and maybe even the the score i think it could have been played as another you know hitchcock toying with you moment where you know he comes around the corner and sees the dog and like we we build and build and think he's gonna like bark and and wake everybody up and then it it diffuses um like somehow i i think something about guy taking control of the situation and you know keeping the dog quiet didn't if that was what hitchcock was going for it didn't didn't play that way for me. So I'm going to argue, like, I, I think everything both of you have said is completely fair. And like, I, I, I'm not trying to convince you you're watching the movie incorrectly by any stretch of the imagination. But for me, how I read it was it's supposed to deflate the situation. Mm. It's supposed to make you as an audience think, wow, everything's just going to work for guy he's really Um, gonna have to do this so that we put our our defenses down 
so that when it's revealed to be Bruno in bed instead of his father, we're not prepared for it. We we've mm. relaxed and now that punch can actually hit us because our guard is down. Yeah, that's a good point. That that's fair. I'll I'll, I'll buy that. That that makes I'll, sense to me. Yeah, definitely. So uh, we get into the room. Uh, Bruno called uh, Guy's bluff. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's revealed that Guy, when he goes in there, tries to wake up who he thinks is father to warn him that his son wants him dead. Uh, But in reality, it is Bruno himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guy says, I'm completely out. I'm done with you. And Bruno says, ah, but I've done your murder. Doesn't seem fit that I should bear the guilt and responsibility for your murder if you're not willing to do mine. So I'm going to have to figure out some way, something worse than just shooting you to do to you. Right. Um, I think there's awfully trusting of Guy to just hand over the gun to him. And, you know, I, I would have thought... Like, if I was in Guy's situation, I wouldn't have done that, like, you know. Yeah, I mean, some points for, you know, throwing the gun on the bed, whereas he handed the key directly to Bruno. But, yeah, like, unload it, you know, drop out all the bullets and then throw it on the bed. I have to think that it was empty the whole time. Like, I wouldn't have, have just given Bruno a loaded gun at that point. Yeah, that's fair. Um... So Guy and Bruno part ways. We then go to, um, I think the next scene is Anne, uh, Guy's girlfriend, confronting uh, Bruno's mother. Yes. Yeah. And that goes about as well as you would expect. And (laughs) uh, the, the purpose of that scene is to set up that Bruno is planning to plant guy's lighter back at the scene of the crime right because otherwise um, guy would know, know where bruno is going next yeah uh it it feels slightly flimsy as a mm-hmm. plan because like are the police searching the island every day at this point but <laughs> you know maybe whatever. i mean you know i don't know forensics looked very different back then so why not sure <laughs> It's also a bit um, uh, like going back to what we were talking about last week with, you know, the mustache twirling. I'm going to tell my entire plan to you. It was a little there was a little oh, bit of that. Oh, for sure. I, I do think to to give some credit there, like I think Bruno is toying with Anne and mm. and with Guy through Anne and trying to convince Anne that maybe this really was all guy uh and bruno is just guy's friend yeah like Um, like i said i um i i didn't really remember most of this when i i sat down to watch it this time so i i couldn't remember if she flipped on him in this scene and mm -hmm. started doubting guy so i I think that that definitely serves that purpose too yeah so i think it's a little a little unfair to say it's just a villain mustache twirling because no, like yeah. he's not he's lying to her but through yeah. lying he's also giving away his plan right yep um so uh the next big set piece is actually two set pieces it's guy trying to win his tennis match very quickly mm-hmm. um 
wall so that he can get to the island before Bruno does. And Bruno trying to get to the island unseen. And we're intercutting between these two. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this is the, you know, 11 o'clock sequence. It's not quite yeah. the climax, but it's building towards the climax. Yep. Um, any thoughts on it? Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence about the, the guy side of this, the tennis match. Um, Mm -hmm. by the end of it, um, I felt like it was working for me and the, the tension had definitely built up as it got closer and closer to the end of the game. And he's going to have to, uh, slip away from the, the officers that are tailing him. Um, but I, I felt like the buildup was a bit long and, um, the, Hitchcock actually breaks the 180 rule a lot in the scene where you're facing one direction and then you flip the camera around 180 degrees and it, it it's kind of jarring in that regard. Yes. Um, uh, so that, that bugged me, but um, also I just felt like it was a bit long and we could have shortened it a bit, but that, that was, that was my read on it. Completely fair. Brennan. So I felt like th- um, this was, in my opinion, the most suspenseful, suspenseful part of the film. Um, it definitely, because you've got that race against time feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both trying to get to this point before the other. Mm-hmm. Um, where Guy has all these obstacles... Um, Bruno really only has the one main obstacle of dropping the lighter in the <laughs> uh, grate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the um, real quick, another side note that I just remembered uh, whenever I talked about the lighter, um, another film choice for this in the book, it wasn't a lighter. It was actually a book. Yeah. There's a novel that Guy left in Bruno's compartment. Mm. Uh, and the ma- the main sole reason for changing the book to a uh, lighter was product placement. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course. I, I'm So Ronson Lighters was the people who it was the brand of the lighter. Um, and there's a couple, actually there's one big shot where the, uh, I mean, there's a lot of shots of the A and G that's on the lighter, Yep. but, uh, there's one really close up scene, um, when the lighter is in the drop through that grate, Mm -hmm. um, where you can see that like product placement right, right there. Um, (laughs) yeah, it's, uh. It's really funny to me because the the company uh, approached a producer and said, like, hey, can can we get into a Hitchcock film like any Hitchcock film in any way? Just just let us know. Um, And Hitch told the producer, like, sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'll I'll figure something out. I'll work something out. And then it ends up being the basically the. Uh, what's the word I'm trying to the, basically the center of attention part of the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Trying um, to frame guy, but it's also like not 
a good prop, right? Like it's it's not it's tainted, it's touched to murder. And yeah. it's <laughs> so interesting because the company was thrilled. They were like, Oh wow, we're we're like the story. We're the mm-hmm. we're the you know caught him red-handed moment that's great and companies nowadays are so afraid of their products (laughs) being shown like here's something that will ruin movies for you but apple will not let bad guys use products which means if you see a bad guy using a apple product they're actually a good guy and it'll be revealed later And if you see a good guy in a film that's using Apple products all over the place using a non-Apple product, it's probably going to be revealed that they're a bad guy. And that (laughs) single decision, like, has ruined more twists for me than (laughs) anything else. I have to say, though, like, for Strangers on a Train, it's like, if you have to do product placement, I think this is the way to do it. Like... It drives me crazy, like any th- anything that Sony publishes, where they just will like <laughs> randomly put the Sony logo all over like cameras and laptops and TV screens. It's just so irritating. So like the fact that this is so organic and just like built yeah, right into the subtle. story, yeah, subtle. Like I didn't even think about the fact that the cigarette lighter was product placement. So it's it's a uh, this is definitely the way to yeah. go, even if you're risking, you know, be, your product being you having negative connotations it's like it's it's organic to the story agreed um so for me this sequence is 50 percent perfect and 50 percent super questionable <laughs> um i love bruno dropping the lighter in the grate mm-hmm. i love the reaction he gets from other people. I love his reaction to that reaction. Um, I love the shots through the grate and the close up on the lighter and the hand reaching for it. All that works so well for me. Yeah. Um, another fun fact, all the trash in the storm drain was handpicked by Hitchcock because <laughs> he's that kind of director. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the tennis match didn't work for me at all. Mm. Part of it, I do think, was the cutting, because I agree, it, like, you're clearly trying to make a person that's not a tennis star look like a tennis star. Yeah, um, I wondered about that, but, if, if they were having to, like, hide, you know, yeah, bad, there, there's bad clearly takes. There's clearly shots where, like, either actor like miss hits and the ball would be going like out of bounds, which we can't have a point right now. So they like immediately cut to a close up <laughs> and you just see like a grunt or something. Um, yeah. It almost felt like they, they shot a lot, a lot, a lot of tennis footage and then Hitchcock sat down in the editing room and he was just like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? But the, the thing that drives me the most crazy is Tennis isn't Guy's passion. It's his hobby. His passion is politics. Mm. He's not trying to go pro in tennis. He's trying to basically stop playing tennis and start (laughs) doing politics. He is about to be framed for murder. And his solution is, I'm just going to play the best tennis I've ever played so that I'm out of here as quickly as possible. 
why doesn't he just lose as quickly as possible? Yeah, why doesn't he just throw the game? Yeah, yeah. like that would guarantee that it's over and he could go. I was yeah. definitely expecting that halfway through whenever he like slowly, like where he was starting to lose. Yeah. I, I was full on expecting, oh, here we are. He's like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Why don't I just give up? And then but, just lose it, and then they bring it back, and he yeah, they just drag it out basically as yeah. long as possible. And it's <laughs> I mean, like, they, what they, are the they do establish that like beforehand that this tennis match is important to him, even though, like yeah. you said, it's a hobby and it's not really like he wants. It's not like he wants to make a career out of it. But yeah, I think given the surrounding circumstances, it's a good point that like if you knew that you're that this crucial piece of evidence that was going to frame you for murder was, was being delivered. Um, yeah, I, I, just, I, I would throw the game too. I, I, I don't buy it. I th- think like in that situation, you gotta, you gotta just throw the games and get out of there. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, little, little questionable there. Yeah. I, that, um, that's, that's fair. But that leads us to the climax. Um, after the game guy dish, ditches his tail though not quite successfully uh, and he makes his way uh, over to the town of Metcalf Merch Mitch Metcalf that's right Metcalf Metcalf uh, he goes to Metcalf uh, he rushes to the carnival the police know he's on his way so they're closing in uh, Bruno has retrieved the lighter and he's moving in, but he doesn't want to return to the scene of the crime in broad daylight. He's waiting for the sun to go down. Mm-hmm. So all the pieces are converging together and we're given the finale. Thoughts on the finale? Elliot, why don't you go first? I mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier when we were talking about the uh, the carousel that um, some of the tricks they use to speed things up are pretty apparent, but... I thought that it was, it was, um, well done nonetheless. Um, particularly the, uh, the rear projection of, um, guy hanging onto the carousel. It was, as it was just picking up speed. I thought that was, was done pretty well. Um, not so much just the plane. Oh, we're going to film an actor and have them walk slowly and then run the film faster like that. That was less effective, but I thought by and large, this was a, a, you know, this scene had aged pretty well. I could be wrong uh, because I couldn't I couldn't verify this, but supposedly and also like my favorite character in this whole thing is carousel worker. <laughs> the guy that crawls um, underneath and, and stops the it. guy that crawls underneath. <laughs> like yeah. it's he's just such a beautiful character. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly that's the actual like carnival carousel worker that they brought in to set up and he just said he would do the stunt. So (laughs) they, and Hitchcock says this is the most dangerous stunt, him crawling under the actual carousel, moving at that speed that he does in any of his films, which is saying a lot, but yeah, um, that's interesting. I didn't didn't know that is true that it's just this elderly carousel worker doing it. Uh, you know, working with a lot of non-actors as I do as a very, you know, micro-budget indie filmmaker, like, I feel that pain of, like, okay, that's the speed he's gonna go at where we'll we'll just speed it up. It'll be fine. 
Yeah, I um, think the the absolute master of this is David Lynch. Um, David mm. Lynch casts a lot of uh, non actors or actors that have been out of out of work for a while, and he, you end yeah. up with these really eclectic casts of characters that are you know not necessarily the best actors, but you know are certainly you know some of the most colorful people you've seen in a movie. Yes. But and I think that this this guy definitely um, it it did. You know, I, now that we're talking about it, I, it does kind of strike me as, as like a David Lynch sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think uh, you mentioned this earlier, Robert, when you said that there was another murder that happens in this, where the were, were you referring to the the police shooting the original carousel yes. worker? <laughs> it like there's no way that this is in a modern movie like it's <laughs> no. just the cops straight up just shoot at a carousel with children and you know all sorts of people on there and they straight up murder this guy <laughs> and then it's just and forgotten it not about. addressed at all yeah they just drop it um to, mm-hmm. yeah that that did take me out of it a little bit it seemed like it was you know hitchcock sort of you know wanting to have his little you know morbid bit of black comedy in there uh, was, it, go ahead brennan i was just gonna say that was definitely the most shocking part in this whole the whole film that was the thing that was just like wait what oh, yeah, yeah okay okay this is happening <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i don't know i didn't it, it did take me out of it but it i it was so quick and we it got yeah. us from point a to point b so i i, I gave it a pass agreed <clears throat> um yeah, it actually it, it tickled like a, a part of my brain. Like I feel like I've seen this in something else. I I want to say that there is a a Twilight Zone episode where there's like this out of control carousel. Um, or hmm. I feel like I've seen this before in some recent film where it's like somebody like falls off, like leans over on the the speed switch or like pulls it down accidentally, and then the, you have this carousel going out of control but yeah I, I don't know you know i'm sure that there have been subsequent films that you know wanted to pay homage to this scene for sure i'll i'll um, say something if i think of what, <laughs> what i'm what i'm thinking of <laughs> okay sounds good um so the last i think like interesting moment worth uh worth talking about uh is the ending of this film hitchcock wanted to end it when guy says bruno bruno anthony a clever fellow Mm -hmm. and he wanted to end it right there um because that's very hitchcocky and you know not letting you you know fully breathe like just ending it yeah um but the studio wanted it wrapped up more nicely so they added in the phone call um, where he says, you know, I'm coming home tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be fine. Right. And then, well, then the studio. Yeah, go ahead. Then the studio wanted an even nicer ending. <laughs> so that that was the ending showed to test audiences. And then they shot them on a train where he's recognized again. And rather than respond to the person, they just get up and leave, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is a really like cutesy little ending yeah, that yeah, Hitchcock yeah. absolutely hated, <laughs> but is the 
the actual ending to the film right. now. Yeah, I don't know. I like I you know, I the phone call scene, yeah, I think that you could have reasonably lost that. I like the the little bookended final train scene like I I, did it, too. it's cutesy, yes. I mean, and I'm sorry Hitchcock hated it, but I I think it, <laughs> it I think it works. Yeah. Well, um any final thoughts? Anything we didn't talk about that you guys want to draw attention to? Um. Well, uh, you know, I mean, there's okay. Oh, we're <laughs> we're we're running kind of long, so I don't want to um, go all the way down into this. But I, there's a lot, a lot of um, analysis of um, the use of glasses across all of Hitchcock's films, and like especially women wearing glasses, and like what it what it mm-hmm. symbolizes, um, and so. I, I, that's probably a conversation for another time, but there's a lot of interesting, um, papers and articles that have been written about, um, you know, Hitchcock's women and, and their, uh, when they're wearing glasses and when they're not wearing glasses. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely a conversation that sounds fun. So we will, we'll circle back to that. Okay. Um, Closing thoughts and scores. Brennan, you want to go first? Uh, sure. I would give this a good eight. Um, I used to not really be into Hitchcock films, um, really until I met you, Robert, um, and really got into film and whatnot. Um, it's hard to give him a low score by any means. Sure. Um, Just go to some of his early he's... films. <laughs> hey, right. you, you got to start somewhere. Right. right. But um, there were those few moments that kind of took me out that we had discussed, um, which is kind of where I'm hitting my points at. Um, and then, like I said at the beginning, the my biggest thing with films, um, older classic films like this, is their acting. Um, I it it's just very theatrical, over the top. It's something that kind of at times can take me out of um, a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the rest of it, I mean, I. I heavily enjoyed um, it probably isn't one of his films that I would take on a deserted Island. Sure. Um, there's definitely ones that I enjoy more. Um, but I mean, this is definitely one that, I mean, I have now I've purchased it now. Um, so I will watch it again. Probably. I got to try to get my wife to watch it. Um, here you go (laughs) but yeah what about uh you elliot yeah i uh i think i would maybe not take this onto a desert island but only because hitchcock sort of has this embarrassment of riches and that there's while this is is one of his better films um like he's made so many masterpieces it's like i probably wouldn't pick this one if i had to just pick one Hitchcock mm-hmm. film to take to it. I'd probably go with Rear Window or Vertigo or um, maybe not The Birds. Probably Rear Window, but 
definitely not this one. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Brennan on the, um, the acting, like you do sort of have to put your, your hat on of, okay, this is an older film and you know, it's not, you know, the culture was different. Like the acting sort of standard was different. Not to say that it was lower, but just like there was a different sort of thought process of, of like where, you know, how much you overacted or underacted. Um, but yeah, yeah. But I, I think that that's sort of counterbalanced with um, how rich this film is and its visuals. Like Hitchcock is just constantly playing with, um, you know, the objects and, and like where the characters are standing. Like one, one shot in particular uh, that I really enjoyed that we didn't get a chance to talk about was it where um, Guy and uh, Bruno are, are standing behind this gate to make it look like they're behind bars. Like I just, I thought that was great. Um, yeah, just that I feel like this film is just loaded with, with stuff like that. And so, you know, really um, I think that that all holds up extremely well. Um, also, uh, we didn't mention this, but this month is the, the 70th anniversary of Strangers on a Train. It's actually going to turn 70 later this month. There you go. So it's, it's yeah, I you know, it's weird. Like, you know, you think, oh, 1951, that wasn't that long ago. But actually, yes, it it was at this point. Yeah. But um, anyway, yeah, I, 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 I think this is a great film. You know, one of, I, I'd say, you know, on the Hitchcock scale, probably in the average territory. Like, again, not, I, I think he's made much more refined masterful films and this one is certainly good but definitely not um near the top of the list so i think if i Mm. were were to give it a score just across all film i might go with like a an eight or an 8.5 but if it was just on the hitchcock scale i think i might put it a little lower and say this is a a seven for hitchcock i think that's fair so this isn't my favorite Hitchcock film. Um, I don't think it's the best Hitchcock film either. I think my favorite is probably North by Northwest. And I think oh, the yeah, best I didn't is even probably think about, Rear Window. Didn't even think about North by um, Northwest. Uh, I'm just such a huge Cary Grant fan. That, <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta give it there. We gotta um, circle back said, and do a month of Hitchcock at some point oh, for this podcast. For sure. I, I could do a year of Hitchcock and be happy. Um <laughs> I think you would be hard pressed to find a list, any ranking of uh, Hitchcock films that doesn't have uh, Strangers on a Train pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it It is a beloved classic uh, and it's for a reason. You know, there's there's really, really strong uh, visuals in it. It does a really great job of keeping you in suspense without being gimmicky Mm -hmm. um and it's you know it's hitchcock being hitchcock so for those reasons you know i I, i'm gonna i think i'm gonna take a nod from you elliot and kind of cheat and say like as a film i probably would give this close to a nine Mm -hmm. maybe not quite a nine but like pretty close to a nine uh, but as for like Hitchcock, I'd probably put it more of like a seven compared to the others. But that's completely subjective. You yeah. know, um, I think if this is your favorite Hitchcock film and I know plenty of people that this is their favorite Hitchcock film, you know, I think it's a solid choice. I, d- I don't think you're oh, yeah. wrong to love this film. Uh, but yeah, uh, whether or not I'd take it to a desert island, probably not. 
you know, I'm probably probably reserving my uh, Hitchcock Desert Island spot for either Rear Window or North by Northwest. Yeah. Um, North by Northwest okay. would be tempting. Yeah, North by Northwest is just such a fun ride. Yeah. Even if there is that kid who plugs his ear before the gun goes off. <laughs> um, yep. That's that's a that's okay. a story for another day. A story for another podcast. Well, thank you so much for uh, watching and discussing this film with me, guys. Um, I know the rest of our films this month are are more contemporary and are going to feel very different. This mm -hmm. will probably feel like the odd one out. Uh, but I, you know, I'll say it probably in each one of those episodes as well. Like, I don't think you have modern thrillers without Hitchcock. No. So uh, thanks for letting us start with this one and thanks for potting with me i will talk to you guys next week when we watch searching yes searching perfect with john cho we're not searching it's, for uh, john cho he's the the star of the film <laughs> he's the star uh it's a 2018 found footage thriller that i might have been my favorite film like 2018 had a lot of good films but mm -hmm. it, it was definitely definitely up there um, i think so it I'm was really my favorite to watch for 2018 one. yeah all right well i will talk to you guys next week as we go through searching sounds well, great blast as always bye bye